how you hate the way I always say that you'll learn someday. Welcome to another installment of Now Hear This Entertainment. It's a little bit of a milestone here with the 350th episode. I am Bruce Wozniak, and wherever you have found the show, thanks for listening. This podcast is widely available, so know that there are lots of options out there to listen and subscribe. Recently, Now Hear This Entertainment has gotten added to both the Amazon Music and iHeartRadio apps and websites. The show website is nhte.net and has lots from all episodes, plus links to social media and podcast listening platforms. Be sure that you have also signed up there for the weekly e-newsletter about the podcast. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Northern California, my guest is a Grammy-recognized songwriter, music producer, and educator. Plus, he has even done TEDx talks on songwriting. He has built a catalog of over a thousand songs and has gotten cuts by major label artists across genres from country, pop, and jazz to classical crossover. Last month, he put out a new book called The Reasons for the Rhymes, Mastering the Seven Essential Skills of Innovation by Learning to Write Songs. You've been hearing a song called Young and Naive by Heather Rigdon, produced and co-written by my guest. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Cliff Goldmacher. Thanks, Bruce. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, good to have you, Cliff. Thank you. Appreciate you making the time. Even though I introduced it as being performed by someone else, Cliff, tell us about that song that was just playing during the intro called Young and Naive, performed by Heather Rigdon. Well, Heather is a longtime friend from Nashville, and we met uh, a couple of years prior to ever working together. And when I met her, Heather was doing more of a country or maybe even folky or singer-songwriter thing. And she sent a cassette to a friend of mine. And on the cassette, at one point in the um, in one of the songs, she dipped down into the low range of her voice and all of the light bulbs lit up. It was like, <laughs> oh, wow. OK, we've got something here. And I had been writing jazz songs for a while in the style of the Great American Songbook. So I brought Heather in to try out a song that I had written with a, a friend of mine, a gentleman named Tom Kimmel. And, and Heather sang that song, and we just knew we were on the right track. So I started out by having Heather record some of the songs I'd written, but then realized Heather was also an exceptional songwriter. So Heather and this friend Tom and I sat down and wrote a song where the germ of the idea was something that Heather had brought in about a, a man in her life who was maybe a little younger than she was and, and maybe a little less worldly. <laughs> and and that's where this partly truthful, partly fictional story of young and naive came from. Okay, you just, wow, there's a whole lot there that you just shared with us. And forgive me if you said this and I didn't retain it because there was a lot there to digest. So... <laughs> It sounds to me like you're saying, and I'm bringing this out, Cliff, because right out of the gate, I think you have just provided a good teaching moment for those in the audience who might be aspiring performers themselves. And it sounded like you said that when you first heard Heather's cassette, you didn't really know her. And yet there was something that you heard in her voice that made you want to know her more and potentially work with her, and, and eventually you did work together. But am I getting that story right? Because if so, and I know this is a big part of what you do, and we can talk about it at some point, but I don't know that that was necessarily a demo that you were listening to, but it shows 
the importance of demos. It shows the importance of the quality of your recordings and the fact that these types of things do exist out there, that yes, someone could just hear you and say, there's something in particular. In this case, you liked her low range and said, I want to work with this person. That is exactly right. And and as the expression goes, fortune favors the bold. So Heather was bold enough to record some of her work and give it to a mutual friend of ours. And he liked it enough to say, hey, Cliff, you might want to listen to this. I don't know if it's exactly mm. if the songs are exactly right, but it absolutely works that way. And in you know, the the myth and I, I consider it a very dangerous myth. Uh, the myth is that if you are good enough, the world will beat a path to your door. And in fact, that's not how it works at all. If you are good enough and you are motivated enough to go beat a path to the world's door, mm. then maybe something will happen. But but you can't be passive in this industry. You really have to put yourself out there. So it was to Heather's credit that she put herself out there that I even heard her at all. And you didn't say, so forgive me for being presumptuous, but you didn't say that she wasn't really enamored with the idea of someone who likes what I do in the low range. That's not really my sweet spot. But what you're saying is if you're opportunistic and what I always say is it's sort of in concert with what you're saying, putting yourself out there, the more connections that you make, everyone's going to say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, in this case, she didn't know Cliff Goldmacher, but she knew someone who knew Cliff. And even he was kind of saying, I know this may not necessarily be what you're looking for, but the point is that she put herself out there, you saw something in her, and lo and behold, it turned out to, great, I'm glad that you did put yourself out there with this cassette and that it's getting shopped and that you're not waiting for the world to come to you because I like what I hear. Let's get to know each other better. Well, that's exactly right. And, and the second part of the story that you picked up on is the fact that nothing in music, in my experience, and I've been doing this for 30 years, nothing happens the way you think it is going to happen. In other words, Heather recorded these songs in a certain style. She may have assumed if everything was going the way she had hoped that she would meet somebody who loved those songs in that style and work with her in that way. And that's mm. that is not what happened at all. Uh, I heard the songs, didn't necessarily connect with the songs. And remember, music is totally subjective, right? So for me, those songs didn't get it for me and that style didn't get it for me. But there was just the spark of something. And, and it took us in an entirely different direction. And in Heather's own admission, and we've had conversations about this, she always described jazz as b a borrowed dress for her. Like mm. somebody had this really fabulous sequin dress and let her borrow it. And that's how jazz felt to her. It wasn't necessarily her primary thing, but she sure liked wearing that borrowed dress. Wow. I like that. I like that. Well, great way to start the show. A great story there. And let the lesson sink in, those of you in the audience who are putting yourself in a box and maybe who are staying in that box and waiting for someone to come and knock on that box because here's here's a great story of the way that Cliff came to know Heather Rigdon and the way that story worked out. So I hope that this is valuable to you because I think we're starting off on a really great foot here with, with episode 350. And listeners, I'd like to say that when you hit somewhat of a milestone with the 350th episode, you do some extra things, not to mention when the guest is a Grammy-recognized songwriter, music producer, and educator. And while, yes, Cliff and I are going to record some extra conversation after I hit stop on this podcast episode, the fact is 
That bonus audio is not just for episode 350. It's available only through the exclusive content put up on the show's Patreon. But that has actually been the case going all the way back to last Christmas. So when you register to hear more from Cliff Goldmacher, you'll also automatically unlock bonus audio from the previous 43 episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. And as I've said before, if you enjoy what I do here each week and just want to support me and don't even really know if you'll listen to the bonus audio, then thank you even more. It's only five bucks a month, but it does help with all the expenses I have for doing this show every week for what has been more than six and a half years now. Just go to patreon.com slash NHTE or from the show website, nhte.net. Use the orange colored support us on Patreon button to go get signed up. I really do appreciate your consideration in helping me out that way. Cliff, if the audience went to iTunes or Spotify and typed in your name, they're not going to see singles or EPs or albums of yours, yet here you are, like you said, 30 years in the business and a catalog of over a thousand songs. Share with us the story about how your career unfolded as it relates to deciding to go all in with the aspects of the recordings that are not being the performer. Well, for me, I I really sort of came into music sideways. I graduated from college with a degree in political science. I had taken the LSAT. I thought, you know, law school's probably what's next. And I took a year off between college and what I thought would be the, the formal law school application process. And I lived in the south of France for a year as part of an internship that I had gotten when I was still in school. Long story short, in that year, even though I had dabbled in this a little bit in college, I really started to take my music seriously. I had the time. Mm. And so I played music every night in a little French cafe, which is not a bad way to make a living, (laughs) and continued to write songs. And by the time the year was done, it really occurred to me that I was moved to do this. this. This really was something I was passionate about. So I basically gave myself an ultimatum. And it was a very simple ultimatum. As long as I felt like I was moving forward and it didn't mean I had to move forward in giant steps. Mm -hmm. But as long as I felt like I was moving forward, I would continue on that path because something told me if I quit songwriting and music then and went to law school, it would be really, really hard to come back. Mm. But if the music thing didn't end up panning out, it wasn't like law school was going to disappear. Yeah. So and that was effectively 30 years ago. Um, but for me, the journey was was about that. It was just about constantly checking in with myself and making sure, even if the growth was infinitesimally small, as long as I felt like I was growing and moving forward, I would keep going. And that was kind of the guiding principle for me. Okay, but what about the decision, though, of I don't actually want to be the name. I don't want to be ah, the voice. I, I'd rather stick with the songwriting side. I'd rather stick with the producing side. I don't need to have all the glory of being the front man. How did you come to that place? That was one of what I refer to uh, a couple of my dark nights of the soul <laughs> in, in my career. About five years in. And I moved to Nashville after that year in France. So I decided to move to Nashville Ah. to pursue a record deal and to improve my songwriting. And my feeling then was I was writing songs for myself as an artist. And I was also thinking that, well, if the songs weren't for me, maybe I could also write songs for other people. But that was very much a secondary part of it. And at the same time, I was uh, recording songs on my own. I always loved recording. 
And so I had a recording set up and every once in a while a friend would come to me and I would record something for them. But about five years in, I was beginning to realize, listen, I am unhappy and I'm unhappy because I am envying the talent of the people around me and comparing myself to the people around me mm. because that's what artists do. I had to see <laughs> where I was compared to the other people around me. And by the way, if you're looking for a way to make yourself miserable, especially in a town like Nashville, <laughs> just start comparing your talent to the people around you. That is a surefire recipe to be instantly miserable. And I was, I was miserable. And right about the time that all that was happening and I realized that I just didn't stack up as an artist, a friend of mine, and it's funny, this just keeps coming back to Tom, but Tom Kimmel, this is now 1998. He was an artist uh, who had a deal on Polygram. He had had records produced by the producer for the Eagles and Dire Straits. And he had gone through his own moment where he realized he wanted to do something not on a major label. He had heard some of the recordings that I was doing for Friends and asked me if I would be interested in producing work for him. Wow. And for me, that was another one of those big light bulb moments where I thought, wait a minute, you mean I get to work with someone whose work I really admire and admire the talent of the people around me instead of envying it? And it was like, again, just a moment where I thought, okay, that's it. I am a producer and a songwriter. I am not a singer songwriter anymore. If I sing, it'll be to perform my songs at writer's nights and things like that, but I'm going to take off the table the idea that I want a record deal for myself and I'm just going to work with exceptional people and help them get their music out in the world. And it became, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but it was almost instantly joyful again. And that was my big indication that I was on the right track after straying from that path for you know a number of years. And until you said that just now, until you said it became overly joyful, I was about to jump in and say, I can tell that it made you happier, oh. just the way that you're telling the story. And so there it is right there, that moment of looking in the mirror and saying, okay, if you don't get it right now, that <laughs> this is the way that you're meant to go and not the way that you've been going, then we've got some real problems here. So obviously it worked out and, and things did eventually go good for you. Take us back to the first song you had recorded by an artist on a major label then. Great. So, so for me, this is... What I love about this story, especially given your audience, Bruce, is that for me, it is an indicator that you need to be writing songs for the right reasons. As, as I've heard it put somewhat indelicately, writing songs for the money is like getting married for the sex. So <laughs> in other words, um, you really have to have your heart and your soul in the right place for doing this because it was 15 years from the time I wrote my first song until the time an artist on a major label recorded mm. one of my songs. Now, wow. what I tell a lot of beginning songwriters, because I do a lot of consultations these days for younger songwriters, is that didn't mean that the work I was doing up until then was all junk. It simply meant that I had somehow achieved a critical mass of effort and things started to bubble up above the surface. Because, and I will get back to that exact story, but after I got that first cut with a major label artist. Songs that I had written five, six, seven years earlier ended up getting cut. Wow. It just so happened that that first cut took 15 years 
to get. And the way that story worked is I have a a dear friend for many, many years uh, named Jeff Cohen. And when Jeff and I met, we were both on the other side of the business. So what I didn't mention is the first five years that I was in Nashville, I had a day job. And, And by the way, that is the norm. So I ended up getting very lucky and working for a music magazine that existed at the time called Performing Songwriter. Mm. My friend Jeff at the time was working at BMI in their writer publishers relations department. Mm. And Jeff and I became friends because he did some work with the magazine and we hit it off. But we both were working on the business side of music. It took us a couple of times of getting together and realizing that we, we were genuinely pals before we both admitted to each other that we were hoping to get our own songs out in the world. Mm. So years later, when we had both quit our day jobs, so to speak, Jeff and I got together because Jeff had heard through a mutual friend that there was an artist on Universal Decca named Ronan Tynan, who was looking for songs for an upcoming album. I remember Ronan. And the songs were supposed to be inspirational. So... Jeff and I got together, and in the course of three hours, as we had done, by the way, many, many times before, we wrote a song. Um, and this song was called The Light Inside of You, and it was it was a song that was designed to be inspirational, and we wrote it, and of course, like I said, none, nothing happens in a straight line, so we wrote the song, and then of course, for months, I heard nothing. And then I get a semi-panicked call <laughs> from Jeff, hey, Ronan is in the studio right now. He wants to cut our song. They can't find the the, the demo of mm. it. Do you have the demo? Wow. <laughs> so luckily, I'm the kind of organized person, as it has been described. I'm the kind of person who wakes up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and makes his bed. So <laughs> I know where everything is all the time. And I got that MP3 to Jeff so fast. And it turns out that, that our simple piano vocal demo ended up being recorded by Ronan Tynan with the London Philharmonic. Wow. And it was, it was, I mean, it really was a life changer. Wow. I love that story though. Do you know where that demo is? I just emailed it to you. (laughs) Yeah, it was basically that fast. Essentially. (laughs) Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, there's one project of yours specifically that I'd love for you to also talk about, which was your collaboration Cold Outside with Kebmo that ended up on his Grammy-winning album, Oklahoma. Well, yeah, thank you for asking. This was another one of those, you have no idea how things are going to end up. Now, I had been a Kebmo fan for, I kid you not, 20 years. Mm. By the time my copyright administrator, my music publisher, had started to have some conversations with, by the way, Kebmo's real name is Kevin, Kevin Moore. Kebmo is a stage name. So Kevin and my publisher, Dan Coleman, were talking about Kevin doing some work with with the publishing company. And so Dan, my publisher said, well, you might wanna write with some of our writers. So Dan reaches out to me and says, do you have any interest in writing with Kebmo? And when I regained consciousness, (laughs) I said, are you kidding? You know, I really had been a fan for decades. And so we got together, and here's the part that nobody sort of expects when they hear these stories. We got together in January of 2015. I went to his place, he was at the door. Already this is one of those surreal moments. And another thing that I think it's important (laughs) to realize is that would have been enough for me. Like I am now in the presence of one of my blues heroes. Yeah. And he's invited me to his house to write a song. Are you kidding me? If nothing else happens, 
that's great. But we sat down, we hit it off. Over the course of the next three hours, it was a January day, and believe it or not, it was cold outside. I don't know where, <laughs> where we got the idea for the song. Um, and we wrote a song, and it was, it was a joyful experience from beginning to end. He couldn't have been more gracious. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, great. Kebmo and I are now going steady. We're gonna be friends for life. We're gonna go out and hang out, and we're gonna write songs every day for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And in fact, the reality is that he is a busy dude. So I followed up about a week later with an email, just thanking him for his time. And I had thought about a line in the song that I wanted to run past him as, as a possible alternate line. And I didn't hear back. Okay, not the end of the world, busy guy, right? I followed up two or three more times over the next couple of months and I didn't hear anything. Hmm. And so I thought to myself, oh, well, you know, it was a great experience. I'm happy for it, but music is subjective. I'm guessing the song just wasn't his style, whatever, right? And then on top of that, he puts out another album, which I had thought we were writing for, which is a collaboration he was doing with another blues artist named Taj Mahal. So the, the Keb Mo Taj Mahal album comes out, and alas, our song isn't on it. So I just kind of put it away as one of these great memories that I got to write with one of my heroes. Yeah. So now... It's March of, of 2019. So this is now four years and change. What? From the time we met, the one time we met and had any communication at all. And I get an email from his management saying, Cliff, we need your publishing information for the song you wrote with Kevin. Oh my gosh. So I wrote back and I said, publishing information, really? Because normally when you need publishing information, it's because Kevin might be thinking about recording the song <laughs> for his album. Is that a possibility? And they said, well, yeah, we'll keep you posted. Mm. Nothing. <laughs> Again, total radio silence wow. until July of that year when I'm looking in Rolling Stone and they announced the new record, the tracks for the new record. And the song is on the album. And there it is. I still haven't heard it. Don't know anything. <laughs> no other contact. So then, believe it or not, November rolls around and the Grammy nominations come out and the album gets nominated for a Grammy. Mm, boy, it's just, oh boy. you know, with, with absolutely zero contact. So I sent wow. one more email to Kevin just saying, listen, I have to thank you. This has been the ride of a lifetime so far. <laughs> and he actually emailed me back and he wrote, hey man, it was a great song, it had to happen. Like that was the whole wow. email. <laughs> so, so all that to say, you have no idea what's going on in yeah. the background. Yeah. I, I think of songs as lottery tickets. So. I bought my lottery ticket in January of 2015, and then, here's the best part, in January of 2020, that song get, gets on the album that wins the Grammy for Best Americana Album. So Amazing. Totally crazy. And, Amazing. and the best part, the little tiny coda on this, is my wife and I are walking out of the Staples Center after the Grammy Awards and bump into Kevmo. Oh my gosh. So I get to thank him in person for for everything. And wow. I forgot to say this just to show what a class act this guy is. From the podium, when he accepted his Grammy, he thanked by name all of his collaborators. Oh my gosh. I, I was there for the entire ceremony. He, no other artist that I was aware of thanked their collaborators, but he did. Mm. Boy, so to oh be thanked, thanked by name from the Grammy stage is a pretty amazing. <sighs> wow, what a story. What a story. 
And listeners, if you've been with me a long time, thank you. And you know that I have a bizarre mental Rolodex of pretty much all 349 episodes that have been done prior to this one. And a lot of what we've been talking about here, if you're new to the show, these are conversations that are happening on Now Hear This Entertainment and that you can learn from. I'm thinking of back in June, I released an interview that I did with Mark Sibelia, who told a story about the success that he had at the beginning of this year. And it came from a song that was never really formally released. It was a demo from back in either 2010 or 2011. And so here's Cliff saying the same thing. This is a song that we started in January of 2015, and all of a sudden I'm getting a call about it in March of 2019. So these are the things that you just can't forecast in the business. We were talking before, you know, you were saying, Cliff, about how what you think is going to happen probably is not going to happen. I can remember all the way back, This I hadn't even hit 100 episodes yet, and I interviewed Johnny Diaz. He's a popular Christian artist. And Johnny was the first of many guests eventually on this show to say, it's the song that you write that you think is going to be a hit that goes nowhere, and it's the one that you write that you don't have those kind of feelings for that ends up being a hit. Yep. And, you know, I'd like to go back to something that you started to say because there was something that you mentioned that made me think of an interview I did with Barbara Cloyd. Mm. And people may know her. She hosts the open mic at the Bluebird in Nashville. And when I interviewed Barbara, she talked about the cut that she had and how she said, you know, you are kind of tempted to start getting comfortable and thinking, well, I guess my phone is just going to start ringing off the hook now. <laughs> so just talk about that, Cliff, because you started to mention having your first one and that you did have some success with all of a sudden people going back to older songs of yours. Right. So first of all, Barbara's an old friend. And I, I love that you had a chance to talk to Barbara. She is she's the coolest. And yes, there there is this assumption on some level that once the success happens, you will you will sort of get on a roll. I think to a certain extent that is true in the sense that zero to one is much harder than one to a hundred. Mm. But that being said, I think one of the gifts of having written songs for 15 years without any appreciable outward success is that you have learned how to get up every day and do the work. There was nothing in my DNA after that first cut that said to me, all right, you can just relax now. Everything is just going to happen because I had spent 15 years getting up every day and doing the work and it became a habit. And that was the habit that I relied on and made it easier when the reality is that, you know, the cuts, they do come, but but they never come the way that you think they're going to. And they never come as often as as you would like, even the most successful songwriters in the business, we are talking about a tiny percentage of the songs that they write that end up doing well commercially. So, you know, having the habits in place, having the work ethic is what carries you through and also prevents you from getting discouraged when things slow down again, which (laughs) invariably they do. (laughs) Yeah. And I like that you're talking about putting in the work because, you know, shame on me. I'm referring to Barbara as she hosts the open mic night at the Bluebird. And that's not what she would want to be known as, just as she doesn't want to be known as the writer of the cut that she did get. She wants to be known as a working songwriter. And in fact, she and I first met when we were at a songwriters festival together. And that's where I did the interview with her. I love it. So it is important that you put in the work and that you don't 
take the attitude that Johnny Diaz said of, I'm going to write this song and this is going to be great and it's probably going to be on the radio. It's important that you do what Cliff is saying, which is, I don't want to say you put your head down and you just keep pushing forward and work, but you put your head down and you keep pushing (laughs) forward and you work. Yeah. And listeners, I want to make sure that you understand just a quick housekeeping note here. When I do reference past episodes of the show, I do put links to those interviews on the show page for whichever interview you're hearing it for. So all these people I'm mentioning, Johnny Diaz, Barbara Cloyd, everyone else that I'm going to be mentioning here, there will be links on the show page for Cliff's episode at nhte.net. So you can go back and hear those. And I also want to make sure that you know This is episode 350. If you look on iTunes, they don't have episodes 1 through 50 because they cap it at 300 for some reason. So you're only going to see the quote-unquote most recent 300, but you can always get all of them on the website. And sorry, iTunes, but on other podcast platforms too. (laughs) Uh, Two months ago, Cliff, on episode 341, my guest was singer, songwriter, guitar, and piano player Liz Longley who has been recognized by Billboard and Forbes, among others. And she talked about really preferring to songwrite by herself. So, Mm. Cliff, since the audience has heard me express my opinions on the pros and cons of writing alone versus co-writing, as someone who has made a career in songwriting, what are your thoughts on that age-old debate? It's a it's a wonderful question, and I would say that like all music and all art, for that matter, the answer will be highly subjective, meaning for me— If it weren't for co-writing, I would not have the career that I have today. Co-writing for me has been, it's what I was designed to do. It was what I was meant to do. I, you know, I can write alone and I still do it from time to time, but the collaborative process for me enabled me to really connect with with what it was that, that I brought to the table, which is I'm much more comfortable lyrically than I am melodically. I'm an instrumentalist, I'm a studio musician, so I, I have no trouble playing instruments, but I kind of write melodies like I sing, fine. <laughs> My melodies <laughs> are fine. Um, when I am paired with great melody writers, many of whom are also artists because artists are singers and singers have broader ranges and write more interesting melodies if they are also songwriters, Mm. Then then my contribution to the equation, which is predominantly lyrical, tends to shine as well. Interesting. Um, Also, as an experienced songwriter, I end up getting paired with a lot of recording artists who have to be good at a lot of things. They don't just have to be songwriters. They have to be performers. They have to be great marketers. They have to be all of those other things so that by the time it comes for them to write songs for their next record, they want to sit in a room with someone who is very, very comfortable doing the thing that they need to be good at for that however long that next stretch is where they have to be writing songs. And I have built a career around being that guy. And so it's why I was able to get in the room with Keb Mo. It was why I've gotten in the room with a lot of artists over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and collaboration has made all of that possible. Now, as far as the purity of a song, whether it's better when it's written by one person or co-written, I don't have strong feelings either way. I have heard amazing songs that have been written by one person. I've been a Billy Joel fan since forever, and he writes almost without exception by himself. Yeah. Uh, James Taylor, same way. And then I've also been an Elton John fan, and Elton John, almost without exception, collaborates. So. I don't think, at least personally, that there is one way that is better than the other, but I can say with 100% certainty 
that collaboration is the reason I have a career as a songwriter. Nicely said, nicely said, and some great examples there too, for sure. So I mentioned in the intro, Cliff, just to shift gears a little bit here, your new book is called The Reason for the Rhymes, Mastering the Seven Essential Skills of Innovation by Learning to Write Songs. It is said that in the book you explain the seven specific skills that songwriting develops and why learning to write songs is an ideal exercise for anyone in business intent on improving their ability to innovate. So does that mean that the book is for business people and not for songwriters? It's a great question. What I have found is that it is certainly designed for business people interested in learning to express themselves more creatively in the overall goal of becoming a better innovator. However, because I break down the songwriting process and really get granular about what makes songs work, I think the song works really well for songwriters too. Mm, so okay. it, it works on both on both sides. I wrote the book because I do a lot of work with business teams who are exploring various concepts and want to look at things from a different angle using a different lens. And so the book is all about how people who tend not to think of themselves as creative, meaning business people, how they can learn to be creative by having somebody with experience and creativity break the process down for them. But, you know, to your question, it absolutely works if you're a songwriter who, who wants a, a deeper understanding of what it is that makes songs work. I like it. I like it. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Northern California by Grammy-recognized songwriter, music producer, and educator Cliff Goldmacher. Visit his official website at cliffgoldmacher.com. You can look at the title of this episode on your listening device to get the proper spelling of his last name, although I will have a link to his website from the show page for this episode at nhte.net. He is on social media. Find Cliff on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even on YouTube. His new book is called The Reason for the Rhymes, Mastering the Seven Essential Skills of Innovation by Learning to Write Songs. Support Cliff and help yourself by purchasing that book from Amazon. Do spend some time on his website as well, looking to see the various services that Cliff offers relative to how you might be able to work with him. Remember that Cliff and I will have even more conversation in bonus audio that can be heard when you sign up for the Patreon for this show. It's only $5 to get started and gives you access to similar exclusive content that I've put out each week since last Christmas, a total of 42 audio files up to this point. It's a great way to let me know that you enjoy and appreciate what I do. Go directly to patreon.com slash NHTE or from the show website, nhte.net. Use the orange-colored Support Us on Patreon button to go get signed up. Keep in mind that whether you're buying Cliff's book or anything else at all from Amazon, if you scroll down on nhte.net to the tall Amazon banner and click that, it will take you to Amazon and you will be supporting me and this show without taking any extra money out of your pocket at all. When you start your Amazon shopping that way, at the end of your transactions, they will kick back a small percentage of the sale to me at no extra cost to you, which helps with the expenses I have in doing this show, and it's all totally confidential. I don't know who bought from them or what was purchased or how much you spent. I even posted a how-to video of this on the Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account last week, Tuesday, on October 13th, showing the navigation both on mobile and on desktop. Cliff, we were talking about your new book. Last month, 
On episode 346 of this show, Las Vegas-based entertainer Dane Reese was telling me how he took what he was doing in his speaking engagements and essentially turned it into a daily podcast. I mentioned in the intro about your having done TEDx talks, and I know you just said about some companies that you work with, but was it a similar case with you or the talks that you give what inspired you to write the book by chance? It is definitely connected. For me, the talk and the talks were really all about, again, getting inside of songwriting uh, and, and thinking about it in a broader sense. So once you start to do that, once you start to extrapolate what I, what you've learned or what I've learned in this instance from songwriting and applying it to the world at large, that's where the book started to develop and where my workshops for business teams started to develop. And a friend of mine years ago said something really smart, which was when things are working in your life, everything informs everything else. So for me, as the songwriting was developing, as I was understanding my craft better, I realized that what I was learning in songwriting informed my life in general, informed the way I interacted with people, informed the way I ran my business as someone who is trying to keep the lights on as a musician you know, for the last three decades. So everything informs everything else. And, and so in answer to your question, yes, absolutely. Once I started to do things like TEDx talks, it, it broadened into my work with business teams and now and now my book. And I like that because it's a brilliant business strategy in the COVID era mm. as it relates to you can't go out and do talks now. So in the case of Dane Reese, why not do them over a daily podcast? In the case of Cliff Goldmacher, I maybe can't even go out to the companies anymore because maybe they're not even having their employees come in where I can get the whole team together and talk to that staff face to face. So why not turn this all into a book? So I, I love the strategy and I love your friend's advice about Everything informs something else, and it's, you're, you're playing it out for us perfectly here. Let me pick out something from your book so you can give the audience a specific example of what you've written about. For example, one of the seven essential skills of innovation that you cite is communication, which you liken to writing the chorus in a song. So how are you drawing that similarity? I, I love that you're asking that question because I, I think that that is a, a classic example of where learning an element of songwriting informs the bigger picture. So choruses are not just a part of a song that continues your story. It is the moment in the song where you crystallize all of the different elements of your story into something memorable that summarizes what your entire song is about. Mm. Now, that's a very fancy way of saying you tie the message of your song to the end of a baseball bat and you beat the hell out of people with it. <laughs> and, and that's what choruses do. And the best choruses are the most memorable choruses because that is all they do. They, they get it to the, the most essential, distilled moment of description and then repeat it and repeat it. And so communication on a larger sense, even in a corporate structure, is all about, it's not about showing people how much you know. It's about showing people how you can distill what you know into the most essential, simplest way that they can also understand it and, for lack of a better metaphor, sing it back to you very quickly. Mm. And that's what choruses do and what good communication does on really any level. Yeah, I'm thinking of elevator pitches. I'm thinking of, and I know you've done 
work that's been used all over the place, but I'm thinking about TV advertising specifically. And that's what I'm hearing as you're describing this is going in and asking a company, okay, what is the essence of your brand? What is the message that you want people to hang on to? And how many of us watch television and we can either finish what they're going to say in the commercial before they say it because it's a a very well-written tagline or you're just in everyday conversation and you all of a sudden sing a little commercial jingle because it relates to what you're talking about and there it is it's a carryover from what you're describing writing the chorus in a song it's exactly right that's exactly right so cliff speaking of books you also did an ebook called the songwriter's guide to recording professional demos it sounds pretty self-explanatory but just talk about that as well as where slash how that one is available Wonderful. And thank you for doing your homework, Bruce. I really appreciate it. (laughs) So for me, as a studio owner uh, for the last 25 years, I wanted to break down the process of what it means to, as a songwriter, to bring your song to a professional studio and have it demoed. Because I think for a lot of people, that whole process can be a little daunting. I know when I was starting out, I didn't even think I needed to do a professional demo. I thought, well, you know, my song is really just a melody and lyrics, so I'll just do my own version of it and that'll be enough, right? Mm-hmm. And the reality is that it's it's not enough. It's it's the analogy that I use is a first date where you may be a wonderful person with a heart of gold, but for whatever reason, you get a set up on a blind date and for whatever reason, the week before the blind date, you don't get a chance to shower. So do you think your blind date is going to notice that you are a wonderful person with a heart of gold? Or do you think they're going to notice that you haven't showered in a week? And that's what doing your own recordings are like if you're not an experienced studio musician or singer. The melody and the lyric are the same. We all know that. But they just aren't presented in a way that the industry will respond to. Mm. So that's why I bring this up. And the book is all about understanding that process so that it's not intimidating. Just because you are working with exceptional musicians and great singers doesn't mean that they're not there to make your song the best it can be. Otherwise, they don't have a job anymore. Mm. So I sort of explain the whole process and give audio examples. And I just walk people, especially beginning songwriters, through the process so that when they get to the studio, Ideally, my studio, of course, but any studio, they'll know what to expect and they'll they'll enjoy the process because it really is an incredibly fun process to hear the the best musicians and singers in the world perform your song for your demo. Okay, so I do have a follow up question to that, but let me first ask, where can people get Ah, that ebook? It is on my website, cliffgoldmacher.com. There's a learn page. And if you scroll down on the learn page, it'll be down there. Okay, so. There is an extensive FAQ section on your website, but Cliff, I wonder, in your experience, what do you see as the biggest misconception that artists have when they are hiring a producer? I think the short answer to this question, and I made this mistake myself when I was starting out, is that the artist assumes they have to do everything themselves. And I I understand this because as, as a person who is passionate about your art, songwriters, singer-songwriters, there's this desire to hold on tightly and make sure that you control everything when the reality is that the reason you bring in a producer is so that you can let go of a little bit of that responsibility and just worry about the things that only you as an artist can do, writing your songs, performing your songs, all of the things that are critical to you as an artist. In other words, 
a producer is there so that like doctors, you don't have to operate on yourself. Mm. You can do the things that you need to do and the producer will be the safety net and the sounding board and the person who is there to kind of help you be the best version of your artistic self. So I think the mistake is holding on too tight and thinking that you as the artist have to do everything when in fact the producer is there to, to lighten your load and make the process easier and more productive. So just give me one or two quick examples of what you see artists coming in where as a producer you say, no, 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 exhale. You, you, don't, you don't need to worry about that. I handle that. Great. Well, I'll just start with myself. When I was making my early records, my thought was, well, if I'm going to bring in a cellist, I better know exactly what they need to play, right? So I would agonize over exactly what notes I'd want them to play. And I had a producer say to me once, Cliff, take a, take a deep breath here. Why don't we just play the song for the cellist and see what the cellist mm. wants to play? Wow. And immediately, because you know what a cellist does? Plays cello. So they know what sounds right on the instrument, whereas some dude at his keyboard with a cello sound doesn't really know what a cellist plays. So for me, that was a classic example of just take a deep breath and let the pros do what the pros do and, and bring to the table what only you can bring. Yeah, that's that's good. And I'm laughing, but I'm going to be honest and say I would have taken the same approach as you and said, well, I need to sit here and dictate to the cellist. This is what I'm expecting of you. This is what I'm hearing that you're going to do for me. And lesson learned by me and probably lots of the listeners right now that it's a case of maybe you think that, but let me show you why there's a better approach. <laughs> well, but that's exactly it. And here's the thing. And this is what I talk about in the ebook about about demos is I always recommend that my clients let the session musicians try it their way first because 99 times out of 100 you're going to get something better than you could have ever imagined but in that one time out of 100 where you really have something in your heart that you wanted to hear that person play all you have to do is ask and they will be delighted to give you what it is that you you want but almost always what they give you based on their experience and their years of doing what they do will be better than anything you could have told them to play anyway. Yeah, and we've heard this before on other episodes of this show where I have said, now I see here that you also play guitar yourself. Why did you just sing and not play guitar on your album? And the person will say, Bruce, when you have access to the quality of musicians that I had, give me a break. I'm going to play instead of letting those folks do it. Yeah. And mind you, I would say, and Cliff, feel free to override me on this, but I would say if you go to a studio where it's a one-man operation and that person tells you, I'm going to be the producer, the engineer, and I'm going to play all the instruments, I think that's where you do speak up and say, well, I do have a cellist in mind. I'd like to bring that person in to play cello since that's what their specialty is. I do have a lap steel player who am I right do you agree with me yeah I, you know in the end I think the relationship between artist and producer is is one of give and take so ultimately everybody has to be happy with the decisions that are made and even as I was mentioning earlier when I say let them try it their way first or or you know in this macro example let the producer make a suggestion first if it doesn't work out there, there shouldn't there shouldn't be a fight. It should just be it's the old you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you've never heard a cellist do what they do without you telling them, 
then you're only ever going to hear them do what you tell them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's fine, but it may not open up the broader spectrum of what's out there. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. One thing that I don't like, listeners, is that this coming Sunday, I will not be at the Buccaneers game in Las Vegas to watch them play the Raiders. I'm talking about October 25th because they are not letting fans in because it's an enclosed stadium. You know that I'm looking for any excuse I can find to go to Las Vegas because I just am one of those people that just really love it there. And I think it was kind of denial that I sat and read the Access Vegas newsletter to see what's going on out there anyways, kind of envisioning what if I was going out there this coming weekend. But please read the Access Vegas newsletter. There's so much in there. I read in there the last closed MGM Resorts Hotel Casino on the Strip was expected to reopen by, at this point, probably right about now. Plus, I was reading Harrah's replacing their poker room with a non-smoking slot gaming room. <laughs> I like that as a non-smoker. And I read an item on how much money you should budget when traveling to Las Vegas. I think that's very helpful for a lot of people, especially if you've never been there before. And actually, on a related note, there was also something in there about the best food and drink bargains on Fremont Street in downtown Las Vegas. You can get articles like these, information like this, and a whole lot more. Go to my show website, nhte.net, click on the Access Vegas logo, and make sure that when you're signing up for their newsletter, you put in the code BRUCE to get $5 off. And don't forget, as I mentioned all the time, you'll also get access to exclusive reports that they have. You get access to their private Facebook group. And please set aside a lot of time to read the newsletter when it comes into your email because there's so, so much. I'm not even scratching the surface with the few nuggets that I just threw out there. So again, go to my show website, nhte.net, click on the Access Vegas logo, and during sign-up, put in the code BRUCE to get $5 off. Shame on me. We're winding down the interview, and I've said a couple times that you are in Northern California, but Cliff, how have you fared during this particularly aggressive wildfire season out there? Because I know you're, what, an hour north of San Francisco, I believe, so I'm assuming you had to be affected in some way. Yes, for sure. The short answer is uh, we have been very, very fortunate. The town of Sonoma, which is where I live, has been untouched by any of the wildfires. A lot of people in surrounding towns have lost everything. Mm. For us, it's just been an air quality issue. Mm. You know, some days the air quality is really unhealthy, but in the grand scheme of things, that's, that's really nothing compared to what some of the poor folks in other places have been going through. So thank you for asking. Sure. Um, We've been really lucky. So is it challenging though, as a songwriter to see tragedies such as the wildfires such as others that we all know that I could list and say gee I think there's a song idea there is it challenging to say I'm going to write a song about something that people are only having bad memories of how do you kind of work your way through that because obviously as a songwriter everything you observe is fair game for I think there's a song here so how do you mentally make peace with that it's a, two thoughts come, come to mind right away. One is it is extremely rare for me personally as a songwriter to process in real time. For me, I usually need several months or longer mm. before I have any perspective on what it is I've been through, whatever, whatever that it is. Interesting. In this case, we're talking about the wildfires um, before I have any kind of perspective. But secondarily, I think one of the great roles of the arts of all kinds throughout time is that it gives people a way of sublimating these terrible things 
and bringing release and um, happiness and um, a way of expressing yourself to help you get through painful or difficult experiences. It's a, it's a, a, one of the gifts that I feel like I've been given as a songwriter is that I have a way of expressing myself that helps me process grief or loss or sadness, as well as, of course, joy and all of the other human emotions. Yeah, yeah. Well, nicely said. That That's very accurate and shame on me. I guess it's kind of a from the category of Captain Obvious, but you put it a lot more eloquently. Uh, <laughs> coincidentally, while we're talking about California, we're going to close today with a song by Spencer Day called Lost in Los Angeles. Cliff, before you and I record more conversation exclusively available through Patreon only, tell the audience about this song, please. I'd be delighted. So Spencer and I are longtime songwriting collaborators. We met in New York when both of us were living in New York. Mm. And shortly after we met, Spencer ended up moving out to California and ultimately Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is a a complicated place at best. <laughs> and so I think one of the things that we were doing in the writing of this song was just poking a little fun at what it really means to live in Los Angeles. And we had a good time doing it. So that's what the song is about. And I hope your listeners enjoy it as much as uh, we did writing it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Cliff, it's been so great having you on the show. Thank you so much for being on Now Hear This Entertainment. I do appreciate it. Bruce, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Listeners, that will do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to songwriter, music producer, and educator Cliff Goldmacher. Do visit his official website at cliffgoldmacher.com. As I said before, you can look at the title of this episode on your listening device to get the proper spelling of his last name, but I will have a link to his website on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Do engage with Cliff on social media as well. He is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I did all of those this morning. Liked his Facebook page, followed him on Twitter and Instagram. He's even on YouTube. And for that matter, tell Cliff that you heard him on Now Hear This Entertainment. Remember that his new book, The Reason for the Rhymes, Mastering the Seven Essential Skills of Innovation by Learning to Write Songs, is now out. Support Cliff and learn in the process by ordering that book from Amazon. Remember also to spend some time on Cliff's website looking at the various services that he offers that you might be able to utilize in conjunction with your music career and remember about the ebook that you can find on his website as well. Also remember that Cliff and I will have even more conversation over in the bonus content that you can access when you sign up for the Patreon for the show. It's only five bucks to get started and it tells me that you're enjoying now here this entertainment and finding value in what I do whether that's educational value and learning from me and my guests or entertainment value, just go to patreon.com slash NHTE or from the show website, nhte.net. Use the orange colored support us on Patreon button to link over to it. Another reminder to always start any and all shopping that you do from Amazon by starting on nhte.net. Scroll down to the tall Amazon banner and click through so that they can kick back a small percentage of the sale to me at the end of your transactions at no extra cost to you. Cliff's book is one suggestion that I'll make, but you know what you use Amazon for. You know how often you shop from them. So just remember your friend Bruce and the ability to help out now here this entertainment by starting your Amazon shopping through the banner at the bottom of nhte.net. 
That's going to do it for the Milestone 350th episode. Thanks ever so much for listening. We'll send you out today with the Spencer Day song that Cliff just talked about. This is called Lost in Los Angeles. Everybody here has got a story In the sun-kissed city by the sea It's a crazy, hazy purgatory A candy-colored bag of broken dreams Here they come, those hapless, hopeful strangers Wrapped up in the fabric of the town They wear the city like a fashion statement The way red carpets wear designer gowns And from above, from above They look like angels But when you're down, down Somewhere, but ain't nobody I know from around here. Hide those New York roots beneath that blonde hair and watch those Midwest morrows disappear. Cause from above, from above, they look like angels. Yeah, but when you die. Taking a drive on the 101-110-405 Call the 818-323-310 Tandem booth, boob job, play the game Screenplay, headshot, change your name Botox, Megaplex, Traffic Jam, LAX, Skin, D-B-I-P Someone come and help me L-O-S-T-N L-O-S-A-N G-E-L-E-N Lord, I guess I'm L-O-S-T-N Yeah.